Was that an actual cue to start it? Yeah. We're positive this is a frog call and not a distressed goat. Well, Ben, it's very interesting that you say that. Is it some sort of like, I, if, if... Don't be hasty. Don't be hasty now. Think. If I heard this and was naming a frog after this and there was some sort of cultural background to it, I would want to call it the chupacabra frog based on the fact that it sounds like goats are in distress, potentially being attacked by a goat-sucking chupacabra. That's your frog connection. Old name, that's what I'm going with. It's from (laughs) Central America. It's a goat-sucking frog, and it was named that because of the association with it and a distressed goat. The chupacabra is some kind of mythical creature that attacks goats and sheep. Yeah. Right. So rather than just saying, okay, this is like the goat frog or even (laughs) some other kind of frog, you just went for the chupacabra frog. Ben, I picked this because I was giving you an opportunity to get one right. (laughs) And you've just blown it. You've completely blown it. I'm sorry, my (laughs) natural inclination towards (laughs) names with a poetic and folklore connection just overrode every every sensible and reasonable and reasoned <laughs> this is really terrible okay you know what this frog's called it's called the sheep frog you could have just said it sounds like a sheep it must be a sheep frog it's you more could like have got a goat. it then it's more like it's a goat. just slipped through your fingertips more like a goat and a distressed goat being attacked by some sort of cryptozoological chupacabra-esque being well, it's named for its call. It's named for its <laughs> where, sheep-like call. Where does it come from? And that's from? why it's called the sheep frog. The, so the scientific name is Hypopacus variolosus, and it's found from Texas all the way down into Central right, America. Right, Central America, chupacabra frog. I'm saying there, there's a folklore connection there somewhere. I'm calling oh, it now. Oh, you think so? Yeah, yeah you 100%. might be right about that. If that's the case, That sounds like I a feel... distressed, blood-sucked, capra-esque beast. Well, yeah, they're found all through Central America, all the way down Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico and Nicaragua. And, you know, they do some quite typically froggy stuff. They breed in temporary pools following heavy rains. Temporary pools, that could be in pasture areas. Yeah, they do. They do. There are some pictures of them in pasture land. And I think even um, the irrigation canals, irrigating fields can prompt this species to breed. So, yeah, there is a potential connection there. And they generally hang around underground. But after it rains, they come out and find these pools. Males, the calls that you heard there were, of course, advertisement calls from males. They cool while they're floating free at the water's surface. Sometimes they hold on to little stems, making that noise. And, yeah, sometimes in shallow depressions in the mud. But those are the calls to entice the females to the temporary pools. And once the females have laid the eggs, the males fertilize them. Eggs hatch within 24 hours and the tadpoles grow up and metamorphose in just one month. We don't actually know what the tadpoles eat, but according to Amphibia Web, they've got quite generic tadpole mouth parts, which suggests that they're not specialized. They probably just eat detritus and sort of bits of stuff like in the water, like most, <laughs> yeah, like most tadpoles. Yeah. And when they've metamorphosed into frogs... These newly metamorphosed sheep frogs, they wait for wet days and on wet days they migrate from the wetlands where they have been tadpoles to underground upland sites where they generally try and stay underground. And in these migrations, they hide underneath things. So you imagine all these little froglets coming out of the water and on their way to their safe upland (laughs) sites, they hide under things like 
cow dung. I mean, they could have picked a few more flattering objects See, there we go. to hide under. In this more pasture land connections between this and... Yeah. yeah. I'm sure before, you know, farming took over these landscapes, they had a bit more self-respect and dignity than hiding under cow dung. Uh, maybe if you've got big roaming ungulates, maybe... Maybe, <laughs> maybe cow dung's the way to go. I mean, it's probably warm for a bit. Yeah, and moist, moist underneath, yeah. under that crisp shell that forms on the outside. Yeah. yeah, so they hide under cow dung, also old shoes and litter. Old shoes? <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. What a weirdly specific. I know. It's How many old habitat. shoes are out there in the landscape <laughs> allowing the frogs to traverse the pasture lands up into the, up into the uplands? <laughs> there must be loads. And during these migrations, they are vulnerable to being eaten by snakes, which is pretty cool. Ribbon snakes will eat them, which is Thamnophis proximus. And ribbon snakes apparently can munch as many as nine or ten baby frogs in one sitting. Oh so uh, I'm guessing that is part of the reason that they have lots of tadpoles. hide under old shoes. Uh, ribbon snakes are coming. And the adult frogs like living in areas with trees or tall grass. And yeah, they don't really come out unless it rains. They grow to about four centimetres long and they eat ants and termites. And they, I haven't mentioned it, but they are quite cool. They look quite fun. They're very flat with a tiny little head, really big round body, orange on top and brown on the sides and white underneath. And yeah, but like these tiny little heads, which I guess is oh, probably they're hilarious. because they eat termites. Oh, they're charming. Yeah. They've got tomato yeah. frog vibes. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're quite funny looking. And yeah, they make that ridiculous sound, which is quite cool. I can't believe that they aren't somewhat connected to some sort of chupacabra-esque folklore something. I find this incredibly hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't know. A quick <laughs> Google search would suggest you're wrong. But um, who, who Yeah, knows? but hell, who we knows? couldn't find out the blacksmith frog name association just by searching around so who knows it took an actual blacksmith to contact us yeah yeah so if you're a sheepsmith and you know about the chupacabra yeah yeah all right let's move on let's move on so we've talked about the sheep frog which is hyperpacus variolosus and we're going to move on now to our paper which this episode ben we're talking about the komodo dragon yeah quite generally too yeah really we're doing a review paper and it's very rare we do a review paper because they tend to be massive and dense dry. <laughs> and potentially but this one's dry. literally this is really this short was the opposite the point. end yeah yeah this is fun to read i would actually recommend that people read this and like yeah if you're thinking about maybe just dipping your toe into the scientific literature of herpetology for the first time this one is extremely accessible and fun and you'll get a lot out of it and uh, it will also introduce you to a lot of other concepts but in like a, a relevant fun way i really 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 enjoyed this so this paper is by shine and somawira 2019 Last Lizard Standing, The Enigmatic Persistence of the Komodo Dragon, published in Global Ecology and Conservation. And I said 2019. So before we get on to Komodo dragons too much, I noticed in this paper a definition which I wasn't aware of before, Ben. Oh, a new word. Have we learned a new word today? (laughs) It was a word I was familiar with, but it was a word I didn't actually know the exact definition of. Oh, Megafauna yes. is defined as any species which grows to over 44 kilograms. Yes. A good way of thinking about it is a big dog or wolf. I am megafauna, though. Yes. That's amazing. What result? Yeah. 
I'm never going to forget this. I can go forth in the rest of my life. I am megafauna. It gives me a great deal of self-confidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's own that. <laughs> so megafauna, any animal bigger than 44 kilograms, there used to be a lot more of them on planet Earth. These days we have humans instead. Well, a lot more in terms of species. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more species. So 50,000 years ago, big things started well, they were already started, but it was around 50,000 years ago, generally, that megafauna were disappearing from the Earth. This, of course, coincided with the expansion of modern humans. Right. The debate there is massive and ongoing because you've got all sorts of, depending on where you are in the world, there's different drivers sort of impacting megafauna and different sort of balances between human, direct human-like hunting pressure and other pressures that come alongside humans arriving in a place. You've got climatic shifts all sorts of things going on, and they're also going on over like thousands of years. You're never going to pare it down to this is what caused it sort of thing, I don't think, because you're just not going to have the evidence to be able to ID exactly one reason. And the chances are it isn't just one reason, but it's a combination of stuff. Or certainly the impression I get from the debate is that we wouldn't have lost whatever. The world would have more megafauna if it had not been for humans, basically. It's like we're a critical component of... The reduction of megafauna. That, I think, is beyond debate. Yeah. And it's like, there is a lot of synergy in the, the causes of yeah. the kinds of animals. You know, it could just be that, yeah, the habitats were modified. Maybe they could have adapted, but the climate was changing at the same time, etc., etc., etc. Right. And they all sort of play in together. The relative balance is hard to ID, but there's undoubtedly all of these things played a role. And humans definitely played a rather large part of that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there's different people fall on different sides of it. I'm sort of not an expert, but I think it's, humans probably uh, did most of it. It certainly seems that way. It certainly seems they're a critical component, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so last 50,000 years, megafauna disappearing from Earth. We got gigantic birds, elephant birds, gone. We got giant mammals, big sloths, gone. And reptiles, be it crocodiles, be it giant turtles that are even more giant than leatherbacks, and giant lizards they started to go extinct as humans spread across the globe but some remained so komodo dragons they are huge lizards by far the largest remaining lizard on earth they can weigh in in sort of extreme cases up to 100 kilograms grow up to two and a half meters long which is eight feet and they first evolved about four million years ago and they used to also be found in australia now they're found on indonesian islands only, which is kind of just northwest of Australia. And they used to coexist in Australia with the even larger Varanus priscus or Megalania, which we've talked about on the podcast oh, before, which was this behemoth of Varanid. Yeah. Whopping monitor lizard, five meters long. But as of 50,000 years ago, thanks in part at least to modern humans, yeah. mainland Australian Komodo dragons and Megalania, both extinct. But on islands in Indonesia to the northwest of Australia, you still have. Komodo dragons and you know they're named for one of the islands they inhabit Komodo and really their survival on these islands is kind of a bit of an outlier because yeah they're these giant lizards they're still alive these days they eat mostly deer pigs and buffalo but those animals actually weren't introduced to the islands until about 10,000 years ago between 10 and 7,000 years ago so there's a kind of this gap of 40,000 years where Komodos have been restricted to, you know, like Rinka, Komodo, and a couple of other islands in Indonesia, Flores. But 
they didn't have the pigs and deer to eat that humans introduced subsequently. So there was this kind of like 40,000 year gap where they managed to, against the odds, survive on these little islands. And one of the things this paper was doing was just trying to consider ways in which they actually managed this. Yeah, because it is a, they are an outlier. There's nothing like a Komodo dragon out there. They're so unique. <laughs> they really, you know, they really are. Like the scale of them and something so massive on such a restricted area is, it does sort of fly in the face of perhaps what you would expect. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they draw the comparison between, like, think of a tiger on a small island. <laughs> it would be kind of weird because of just the sheer quantity of food it would require. Yep. Yep. And they make that point in this paper yeah. because they're ectothermic, they're not producing their own heat. They're much more efficient in their metabolic processes. And so a giant lizard, the same size as a tiger, would actually only need around 10% of the food and water of a tiger. That is super efficient. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. So despite the fact that no tigers, as you said, could live there, Komodo dragons can live there comfortably. I reckon we just run through all the things they talk about in these papers because they're all as interesting as each other. I think you can sort of group them because the energy use one is sort of like a dietary aspect mm. and the next sort of couple are dietary focused because this ectothermy also buffers them against what do you call it dramatic perturbations variations this sort of seasonality that can be quite dramatic if you are eating a foodstuff and then it disappears and you can't eat for the next x number of months if you've got a lower metabolic rate you're going to be able to weather that a lot better than a warm-blooded mammal that is going to need food more consistently and more frequently and therefore times of no food are going to be real tough on a mammalian yep. of similar size yeah and mammals have evolved strategies to deal with that that's what hibernation right. is but these lizards are not hibernating you know they're just feasting and famining they'll just lay on fat reserves when the good times roll you know yep. some examples they talk about here is if there's a bird nesting season, they'll go and eat loads of eggs. Similarly, if the turtles are nesting, they'll catch the turtles when they're trying to lay their eggs and they'll also eat the eggs. And that might only be a month or six week window in the year, but they have that opportunity to stack on fat and then that can carry them through times where there's a little bit yeah, less. a buffer. And in the same vein, as you mentioned, they have this developmental flexibility so they can... If there's not any food, they don't need to grow. They can grow slower. They can slow down their growth. And in the case of some reptiles, as we talked about a couple of months ago on the podcast with the marine iguanas and the Galapagos, some reptiles can actually even shrink down when they need to. So yeah. their bones can shrink. Yeah, it's, it's an individual plasticity thing as opposed to they're just evolving to be smaller because there's less food. Like it, it's more reactive than something you'd need to be passed down genetically. They do yeah. highlight a paper that shows that Komodos in areas with lower density uh, ungulates to eat are smaller. So there is some suggestion that, that that's a, something that Komodos are capable of and that it is a plastic trait as opposed to a genetic trait. Yep. And similarly, they have this kind of like flexibility in their diet. So there's a lot of variety in what they eat based on where they are and also the time of year. So they can focus on things which are like available now so if there's a period where there's loads of crabs or there's like carcasses or fish in drying up ponds they'll go and eat those and similarly you know there was a period of time apparently where there was loads of tourists in Rinca on one of the islands and it meant that the deer were not really about locally because the tourists had scared them all mm. away and they saw that the Komodos were eating more monkeys during that period. So they have this flexibility. When they're hungry, they'll find something to eat. You mentioned taking turtles and stuff 
And that's, so this is a slightly different trait, but their ability to tolerate salt water. Basically, they wouldn't have that opportunity to eat turtles and sort of sea-dwelling creatures if they couldn't handle high levels of salt. So you've got another trait opening up that niche and opening up that flexibility that isn't necessarily directly related to diet, but then boosts and increases that diet, you know, the potential breadth of their diet. It's amazing. It's it's just all these traits. They all just sort of feed into each other and sort of complement each other to keep these incredible lizards going through times where they just don't have large mammals to eat. It's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah. The babies live in trees largely, so they're kind of feeding on different things than the adults, so they're not competing. Cover that whole paper on the uh, genetic shifts in diet, right? Yeah, we did. And actually, mate, I was lucky enough to go to Komodo and Rinka in 2013, and um, it was just incredible. We saw some Komodo dragons, and they are just as big as everyone says. And um, <laughs> It's not just stories. <laughs> nah, they're like so magnificent it was like literally i felt like a little kid i was so excited but while we were there we also saw a juvenile one and um the juveniles looked completely different it it was up in this tree and it actually fell down out of the tree while we were standing nearby yeah mortifying for that lizard (laughs) and um but the guide the guide that we had it made him jump it really freaked him out and you can tell there's a man on the edge he knows that he's inhabiting an area with some dangerous lizards and he's playing no <laughs> games when this You've little be tiny komodo fell out of the tree he jumped about six feet but it was really cool and the babies are really beautiful they have this like night sky pattern mm. they're almost like bluish but yeah they're inhabiting the trees partly probably because it keeps them away from the adults because they do cannibalize each other which another reason for their success yeah there's some more flexibility for you if you don't have anything to eat just eat your fellow dragon yeah that's kind of a dual thing the babies are up in the trees eating different things so they don't compete with the adults but they're also defending themselves from predation by adults and the other aspect is if they're becoming sexually mature while still consuming tree dwelling potentially smaller prey items you can maintain a population without the sort of larger ground dwelling adults necessarily for until bigger creatures appear and allow those larger adults too so you it's almost like you've got two levels of komodo dragon (laughs) operating so it can sort of they can shift back into the trees if needs be or the population in general can shift back into the trees for a time yeah so those are the kind of ways in which they are adapted to this like island lifestyle despite their massive size but the actual islands themselves so these wallacean islands in indonesia also have some features which could have benefited them throughout sort of the last fifty thousand years one of those is that it's like it's an archipelago, right, with sea around, many of which the islands are kind of semi-isolated. But what that means is that if a volcano goes off on one island, there's Komodos on other islands to kind of feed back, much like the Phymaturus lizards we yeah. were talking about recently. If there's a big volcanic eruption which wipes out local population, the other populations locally which aren't affected and can then recolonize subsequently. So the Komodos have probably benefited from You've that. You've got that flexibility in traits. You know, we were talking about these lizards that basically just skipped a year of reproduction to buffer against that volcano. That might not be something other species or groups could do because they need to breed every single year to maintain that population because of high turnover these guys can maybe take that buffer skip out a year and still be okay Mm -hmm. yeah so we've kind of talked about how they managed to survive through the period where modern humans weren't there so those are the things that the islands have kind of offered them but in the more recent time so like ten thousand years to present they've actually in some ways benefited from or well they've basically managed to survive despite modern humans right it's a balance like it's a costs and benefits (laughs) sort of thing yeah 
one of the best ways that humans have actually helped the dragons, as we mentioned earlier, is that they've introduced ungulates to the islands. So pigs, pigs, deer and buffalo have all been introduced quite recently. And now these massive dragons actually largely eat just that. They will largely eat these mammals which have been introduced. So obviously that's a huge, a huge benefit. And um, it's not just, you know, the deer that humans have brought. They're not in cages, they're not captive deer. They've escaped and set up wild populations. Feral populations, yeah. Yeah, it's those populations that the um, Komodos are actually feeding on. And there's some other kind of things to do with the environment which actually aren't ideal for people. So seasonally, it's very arid. There's not always permanent water bodies and the soil is very porous which makes it hard for human beings to survive yeah basically a lack of permanent agriculture it becomes tricky yeah Yeah. and similarly it's very harsh and variable there so um you know the climate during the time that humans have been present has been quite variable sometimes it's been very arid and so yeah they're kind of better able to sort of protect against that than human beings and throw in some large volcanic eruptions as well and you know it's starting to not look like a brilliant place to hang out if you're a human whereas you know komodos they can weather it a bit better yeah exactly so yeah the image that they build up is like i mean so much of it is obviously it's just evolutionarily good luck yeah but um komodos are essentially these like quite intelligent quite adaptable quite sort of um yeah, variable in their appearance mm-hmm. over time. They talk about the period of sort of 40,000 years between human beings wiping them out in Australia and then the human beings arriving properly, properly in um, the islands of Rinca and Flores, etc. And there was this time where the Komodo dragons, in the absence of any deer or pigs to eat, were actually thought to be smaller. There's not a lot of evidence for that. All they've got is some teeth. But the teeth found from during that 40,000-year period on the islands were four millimetres long, whereas on average now, an adult Komodo dragon on the islands has a tooth of six millimetres long, which suggests they could have been as much as a third smaller than they are today, which is obviously going to be beneficial if they're trying to find food and there's not pigs and sheep, pigs and... I don't know why other farm animals keep creeping in, but (laughs) pigs, deer and buffalo, in the absence of those big animals to eat in the last 40,000 years, or it's in the last 50,000 years, we're actually managing to get smaller in order to eat less food and survive throughout that period, which is really cool. It is. It's remarkable the flexibility these dragons have. Because you, you mentioned the sort of varanid intelligence angle. And last episode, we were talking about personality of individuals. And there are suggestions that personality could have played a role in the dragons doing better. So humans arrive, potentially coming in direct conflict with these beautiful varanids and potentially hunting them or killing them when they're too, coming too close to human settlements and so if you had individuals that had that behavioral flexibility to recognize threats and therefore sort of react to them become more shy or avoid humans or whatever you have this sort of buffer in the population that you've got some individuals that just aren't as at risk when humans arrive And that can sort of help just bolster them against, you know, this sudden shock of a new species arriving on your island that is hostile to you. Yeah, it pays to be smart, I guess, is what I'm trying Mm. to get at. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, yeah, it would be interesting to see some studies on uh, the kind of cognition of these animals. I really hope that we don't get any cane toad studies with monitor lizards. Let's keep cane toads out of there. Yeah, I specifically believe komodos are not 
resistant to uh, cane toad toxin, if my memory is serving me correctly. I think mm. they are very much the island Australasian type of uh, resistance, not a resistant. They're not like the Asian monitor lizards that can consume them, no problem. So right. I think that is a genuine concern. Yeah. And uh, we haven't mentioned, but they are venomous. They are venomous lizards. Right. They're real-life venomous lizards. The idea that they were... Um, bacterial. You know, using weaponized yeah. bacterial saliva has been debunked. And they actually have legit venom. Which, again, is another like tool for them to use in different scenarios and enables them to take decent-sized prey items, like a newly introduced buffalo, <laughs> even if they were yep. a little bit smaller, potentially. But yeah, this is a lizard that weighs as much as a bodybuilder sometimes. More commonly 75 kilograms, which is kind of a Tom-sized lizard. But still, that's very big. We are megafauna. <laughs> we are megafauna. <laughs> <laughs> the most disappointing of the megafauna, but still megafauna. It kind of like reframes our pressure on Earth when you consider every single individual human as a megafauna. Well, I think it better frames it, doesn't it? Because if you think of, yeah. okay, of a megafauna, elephant, you wouldn't even for a second forget about the impact of a single elephant walking through a forest. No. But potentially you are liable to forget about the impact of a single human walking through a forest. Okay, yeah. you know, they're obviously different creatures and I'm making a, a gross oversimplification, but it's a better way to conceptualize it and a better way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned elephants randomly there. There used to be pygmy elephants into the Wallacean mm. Islands. The dragons ate them all. Yeah, when Komodos <laughs> first arrived, they were eating elephants. Which is just And that was part incredible. of the reason they were successful. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Stegodon went extinct. Did they mention... Was that humans? I think so. Stegodon is the giant elephant, the right. pygmy elephant they used to eat. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why Stegodon disappeared. I would be inclined to... Yeah, oh yeah, they disappeared 50,000 years ago, uh, which coincides with... Although... Yeah, they did say modern humans didn't arrive until 10,000 years. So, yeah, it's unclear why Stegodon disappeared. Maybe it was the dragon. Well, there were still hominins about at the time, weren't there? Oh, yeah. Because there was uh, Homo florensis. That's the one. That's the one, yeah. Homo floriensis. What were they? Were they little yeah. people? Yeah. They were, I forget what the paper, the word hobbit pops up in relation to them. Oh. In sort of popular culture ah uh ah -huh. uh, they were small yeah. weren't they 25 kgs adult size see they weren't mega like they weren't they weren't yeah. no and they only stood just over a meter tall yeah wow Again, crazy contrast yeah. like island dwarfism versus island giganticism being played out on similar or neighboring islands with vastly different uh outcomes imagine that stegodon this tiny little elephant being hunted by tiny little people. I mean... And then this huge Varanid arriving, or still yeah. being there, in fact. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Stegodon, I don't know. Stegodon actually looks kind of big in some... Well, a small elephant is still quite big. Pygmy elephants. Maybe there was some big ones and some small well, ones. Well, Stegodon is just a genus, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like some species in the genus Stegodon were actually bigger than Asian elephants, but yeah. yeah I say, just a genus. Lots of variability yeah. in there. Yeah, so these ones were explicitly the small yep. ones. But there you go. So yeah, basically, it's an absolute miracle that we've got Komodo dragons still. And I don't know, I feel pretty fortunate to have had the opportunity to see them. Yeah, I'm mad jealous. <laughs> yeah. Matt. If you get the opportunity, go. Uh, it's just fantastic. And um, 
yeah, just I really hope that they continue into the future. And I think, yeah, of all the, I think they are pretty well protected. They are also a massive tourist attraction, which obviously has pros and cons. Like any of these things, it's a tricky set of situation to manage. But uh, it feels like they have a lot going for them in terms of support. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. Have got anything else on... Uh... Komodos? I don't think I have. You got any other business? No, I don't. I'm just looking at the pictures of the Komodo dragons in this picture and in this paper, and I'm just basking in their glory. And <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, no, I just love the pictures of the males combating. It's just like, wow. That's just nuts. Just unbelievable. Absolutely nuts. Yeah. There's a reason yeah. they're used in the logo. Yeah, old blue. Yeah. Renamed since we turned in blue. <laughs> Yeah, cool. Well, I think that's about it. So, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, then do. You can at herphighlights at gmail.com. And we're on social media at herphighlights. And, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.